Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of UBS's Summer of Artificial Intelligence series. I'm Anthony Pastore, your host for the past now four episodes of this series. Today's discussion is applications of artificial intelligence. So in this final episode of this four-part program, we're going to continue our discussions about the world of AI. We've been tracing its remarkable origins. We're envisioning its awe-inspiring future, and we are continuing to unravel the incredible ways that humans will wield its power. And as you've seen throughout the series so far, I've had the opportunity, the great opportunity, to ask experts in the field of AI if they feel that it's going to fuel the next surge in productivity, innovation, and economic uh, prosperity, or do they think it will be the next great threat to jobs, to industries, and humanity? So today for our discussion, we are being joined by Sam Charrington. He is a noted machine learning AI industry analyst. He's an advisor and a commentator. He's also the host of his own podcast, the TWIML AI podcast, formerly known as This Week in Machine Learning and AI. So Sam, welcome to you. It's really, really nice to have you here join the Summer of AI series. Thanks for being here today. Thanks so much, Anthony. I'm super excited to be here and looking forward to our conversation. As am I, Sam, and I know our audience is as well. So as a reminder, throughout the series, we've given you all the opportunity to ask questions of our terrific panelists. So if you'd like to ask a question, make sure you click that Ask a Question button right on your screen. If you're looking at this in a full screen on your computer, just minimize that window for a second and you'll see the button off to your right. You could bring the screen all the way back up again. But in the meantime, let's get started. So Sam, as I mentioned, you are a lot of things, but well-regarded <laughs> as an AI industry observer, and you have followed in your career these ongoing developments in artificial intelligence. You've published over 600 episodes of your podcast, which are fantastic, by the way. Got a chance to listen to some of those. And on those, you've spoken with technologists, industry experts, practitioners of AI, so uh, this is a great way to wrap up the series because your perspective here, I think, is really, really crucial. Uh, so in prior sessions, we've talked about this, what we call the hype cycle for AI, and whether this enthusiasm around large language models like ChatGPT is maybe overdone. What's your view here? And you know, do you think that AI at this point in the story is maybe overhyped a little bit? Yeah, that is a really interesting question and uh, one that I hear all the time, Anthony. Uh, is AI overhyped or is this enthusiasm around it that we're seeing nowadays substantiated? And the thing is, I don't think that these two are mutually exclusive. Um, that's because the question kind of implicitly constrains this variable that isn't actually fixed, and that variable is time. Uh, you mentioned the hype cycle. You know, one way to think about the hype cycle is that it's a snapshot in time. And in fact, Gartner just released their 2023 AI hype cycle last week. And if you look at the very tippy tippy top of the so-called peak of inflated expectations, uh, care to guess what you'll find? Well, generative AI. Uh, but you can also look at the hype cycle as a trajectory that a technology uh, takes. And while uh, generative AI and technologies like ChatGPT may be currently at the peak of inflated expectations. Uh, they will eventually transition to the plateau of productivity. Uh, and so I think, yes, ChatGPT is overhyped right now. A lot of the things that people 
uh, the, a lot of the capabilities that people ascribe to it, it can't actually do uh, some easily or some at all. Uh, but at the same time, if your time horizon is long enough, many of the usability issues currently associated with generative AI will be overcome and sufficiently solved to make it a huge productivity gain for us as businesses and individuals. Thank, thank you, Grace. That's great, Sam. Let me just ask you a quick follow-up question here. Do you think that there's a part of this story when we're talking about artificial intelligence, particularly these large language models like ChatGPT, that maybe the average person like myself, I mean, I'm learning a lot by speaking with experts like you, but that we really don't just fully understand what it is yet or even how to use it effectively? <laughs> because, that, you know, you talk about this with friends and family and they go, yeah, I heard you can actually uh, tell it to you know, make the things that are in your, in your refrigerator, only those ingredients. I'm like, yeah, but it's so much more than that. Yeah, I think, um, I think that there certainly is a lot that the layperson doesn't understand about uh, ChatGPT and that not enough people understand and are talking about. Um, and I think about it as the opposite of, of how you put it. It's so much less than that. ChatGPT is not intelligent. It's not sentient. It doesn't have a personality. It cannot reason, but yet it can demonstrate all of these things. Why is that? Well, at its core, this is an algorithm, a mathematical model that's been trained on a ton of data, and all it knows how to do is predict a word based on your input and the words that it's already predicted. That's all it's it's doing. And in doing that, uh, we've seen, anyone who's used ChatGPT has seen, it produces pretty amazing results. Uh, and it's it's mind-boggling that this actually works um, and that it can demonstrate what looks like reasoning. It can demonstrate you know, aspects of a personality, uh, but it doesn't have these things. It's not inherently any of these things. And if more people really internalize just that simple model for what this thing is and how it's working, I think it would... Um, you know, help us overcome a lot of this kind of magical thinking about generative AI. Yeah, which which kind of brings us to the next part of our conversation, I think, Sam, because we're looking at it today. We'll we'll look at it from a couple of different lenses, right? We've got what it is, and you know whether you think it's part of that hype cycle, which you're saying it is a little overhyped right now, but. What about putting it to work? Because there are a lot of people watching this who work for large corporations or even smaller companies or nonprofits, and they're saying, how can I use this? So where do you see industries right now maybe being what you might call the early adopters of this uh, technology, these large language models? Um, are more companies thinking about getting into it or maybe more advantaged, having more of an advantage when it comes to AI, given their scale and their ability mm -hmm. to work? Yeah, I think the best way to think about the business impact of generative AI is to think about it from the perspective of the different work streams or roles in an organization. For example, we know that marketing organizations have been early adopters uh, and many marketers are using ChatGPT to accelerate the creation of marketing copy and content for campaigns and the like. Likewise, sales organizations, salespeople are using it to generate emails and craft proposals. HR teams are helping it, are using it to help write job descriptions uh, more quickly, uh, and so on. Uh, conversely, if you work in oil and gas, for example, uh, in the field on a drill, ChatGPT probably isn't impacting the way you work all that much today. 
Um, since it's essentially a text generation tool, the biggest impact is going to be uh, in knowledge work. So McKinsey recently published a, a research study that takes this idea a step further and identifies 60-plus key generative AI use cases. And these are use cases that span industries. It's based on the job function. Uh, and based on that, they estimate that generative AI can create between 15 and 40% more economic value than they previously estimated that AI would create, uh, which amounts to between 10 and 25 trillion additional dollars of a potential impact. Now, uh, if you think about it from this perspective of roles, different firms will have different degrees of exposure to the roles that are impacted by generative AI. Uh, and likewise, different industries will have more or less exposure than others. And in fact, I just recently learned about research by uh, researchers at UCLA and USC um, that tries to identify those firms with the greatest exposure to ChatGPT based on the composition of roles in their companies and demonstrates that those firms have already, since the launch of ChatGPT, experienced greater stock market performance compared to those firms with less exposure by a significant amount. Uh, of course, the open question is whether the anticipated technology benefits in terms of productivity will materialize quickly enough that these firms can justify the premium that the market's already placed on them. Uh, but uh, it, it's important when thinking about uh, generative AI from a business perspective to really put that role-based lens on it. It's not surprising to hear you say that, Sam, because, you know, as people who look at the markets all the time, you see in the S&P 500 now the top seven names performance-wise in the S&P are all technology companies, and a lot of that is attributed to their adoption of AI. But just kind of making maybe zooming out a little bit more, are there mm -hmm. any categories or maybe any industries that you didn't mention that could perhaps see some benefits, whether it's with market share or with revenue coming in or the way that they are you know, managing their employees or the communities they service that could be using AI but aren't using it necessarily right now? Mm. Um, I think there are probably, I, I, just answering your question from the perspective of who could be using it and isn't using it right now, uh, it's actually a pretty large uh, segment of the potential users. And that's because of uh, an area that we haven't yet talked about, and that is the risks associated with using this uh, technology, with the risks associated with using generative AI. Um, there are a great many use cases, in particular customer-facing use cases, uh, for which generative AI would be a tremendous solution, uh, but there are significant risks, brand risk, reputation risk, and more associated with putting ChatGPT or ChatGPT-like technologies in front of your customers. We've seen uh, companies like Google have significant market cap reductions based on you know, gaffes that occurred at uh, the launch of their, their version of ChatGPT. Um, and, you know, companies are afraid of this. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure also, which we're going to get into here in a minute, and maybe even regulation that needs to happen from a government level. But that's a bigger conversation that I don't think we have a lot of time for here today. <laughs> but ongoing, I mean, this is, a, this is a technology that is going to grow and become more part of our everyday lives. Um, but let's, let's kind of 
put the put the brakes on here for a second, which is a perfect analogy because a lot of our panelists have talked <laughs> about the importance of data. And I've heard someone say that AI without actual data is essentially a Lamborghini without gasoline, right? It's a bright, shiny toy that doesn't do anything. It just sort of sits in your driveway or your garage. So some of our panelists kind of focused on the need for what they call proprietary data versus publicly available data that's scraped from the internet. And you and I and everybody watching this today knows that not everything on the internet can be trusted. You know, people can say anything they want. Sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's in between. So you don't know exactly what you're getting. So what's your perspective here and how much value does, um, does or how much does the value of AI and large language models depend on the data and the quality of it? Yeah, it is certainly true that AI and large language models in particular depend very much on the data that is used to train them. In fact, um, you know, we've often said for, for a while now, data is the new oil to capture this idea that there's inherent value in data. Um, but that said, there's this interesting evolution that's happening in the way we're thinking about data, and in particular, this idea of quantity versus quality. Uh, when it comes to training training data for AI and for large language models. Historically, quantity has been the, the lever that we've pulled in order to improve model quality. So current large language models are essentially trained on the entirety of the text internet, uh, and that has opened up a few questions. One is whether we can continue to improve model performance at the same rate if we've already used all the text. Um, and this is one of the reasons why many companies are investing in multimodal models, uh, because there's a ton of information locked in images and videos that can, uh, if harnessed, potentially make our models much better. Uh, another question is that a lot of the information on the internet is biased and untrustworthy, as you alluded to earlier. So there are also efforts to create models that really focus on data quality. Uh, Bloom, uh, part of the Big Science Project, is a great example of this. And... Um, you know, those models have had promising early results. Uh, as far as the value of proprietary data versus public data, it is, is definitely true that, uh, again, data is the new oil. But to some degree, this idea of foundation models has changed the math here. Uh, the idea with a foundation model is that uh, as opposed to, you know, let's call it classical AI, where you had to collect all of your data and build the models yourself, um, now companies like OpenAI, Meta, Google are doing the heavy lifting of collecting this internet scale data and training these models across many, many, many computers. They're spending many, many millions of dollars to build these models. Uh, and that gives you the ability to run them out of the box without uh, doing your own training with the right prompting or inputs. Great. Thank and you, so Sam. the requirement. Oh, yep. go ahead. No, go ahead. Please finish. I was just going to sum that up. And so the, uh, with the amount of proprietary data required to take advantage of generative, generative AI, uh, when you uh, or should you desire to fine tune these models it is much lower. So the barriers to, to value are lower. But it does, it does take human beings to, to input that data, right? So there's still obviously people are concerned about jobs. I mean, that's a job. That's, a, that's a, probably a very big job. 
it is a very big job uh, in terms of the number of people that are required to do this. It's not a particularly sexy or glamorous job or well-paying job. There have been articles about this. Um, but it's very interesting uh, to me that one of the things that we were initially most excited about large language models for is that we were using uh, a technology that essentially learned by itself. And it was kind of a step away from the traditional machine learning uh, approach of uh, labeling data, like manipulating the data as part of the training process. Uh, But we've come full circle. And in order to really get the performance we expect out of these models, there is a significant burden on organizations to curate and label this data. Yeah, which, and, and not to go into the too much detail here, and certainly not asking for any numbers, but it seems like companies are going to have to spend a little bit of money, whether it's, you know, human capital or actual infrastructure, you know, ca- capital expenditures to actually get themselves up and running so that they can use AI really effectively. We saw this for the last decade with cloud computing. I'm imagining that's something that most companies will have to start paying attention to is how do we pay for this? Yeah, there are definitely degrees. Uh, Many companies have invested in uh, what's called MLOps. These are systems for delivering machine learning kind of uh, at scale and in a robust way. And these systems will all need to change. These platforms will need to evolve in order to uh, accommodate these new types of models. Uh, Fortunately, uh, as I mentioned, with this, you know, with these foundational models that you can use off the shelf, you don't need to do it all yourself. I recently published a podcast interview with uh, an individual in the CTO's office of Bloomberg talking about Bloomberg GPT, which is an effort that uh, that company undertook to essentially build a GPT class model for financial information. And they spent many, many, many millions of dollars to do this. Yeah, much of that just on the infrastructure, the the raw compute horsepower uh, to make this happen. It's a significant undertaking, but you don't need to to do that to get started and to get some value out of generative AI. That's great to hear. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of uh, smaller companies or people who run those are kind of catching their breath right now saying, you know, maybe we want to get into this (laughs) game a little bit, but we don't have millions of dollars to spend on infrastructure. Um, So Sam, I want to, well, actually, before I continue with you, I I do want to remind our audience watching, if you have a question, we're already getting some in, make sure to click that ask a question button right on your screen and we'll get it here in the room so I can hopefully have time to ask Sam one or two of those questions before we wrap today. Um, so Sam, when you, when you look at artificial intelligence, maybe from a, a slightly different angle, what are some applications that you're maybe hearing about that, I don't know, to, to kind of put it in simple terms, just don't make any sense? In other words, where is AI a solution that's potentially looking for a problem where there wasn't one to begin with? You know, what comes to mind for me there, uh, and this goes back to my point about really understanding what AI is and what it's not, uh, a lot of people want ChatGPT to be uh, evidence of progress towards artificial general intelligence. This, um, you know, the these sentient systems that are uh, going to, you know, on their own, you know, without human help and support, kind of uh, either, depending on your your bent, uh, solve all of our problems, solve healthcare, health delivery, solve climate, solve food, or um, 
you know, enslave us all, right? To, to you know, to create Terminator-like scenarios. And uh, the the reality is that I and and many researchers and, and folks in the field believe that the the current stable of technologies is just not there, uh, and we don't really know how we're going to you know, or if, or, or whether we should, for that matter, uh, get to technologies that, uh, enable AGI. So I think that that's one of the, you know, recurring ideas that, that comes up that just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And we haven't even really talked about robotics in the sense of what artificial intelligence is as a larger group. Most of the conversations have been happening around large language models, thanks to the launch of ChatGPT last November. But robotics is still, and it has been, playing a pretty large role in helping hospitals, helping businesses. You look at these giant warehouses, they've got robots pulling things off of shelves and bringing them to the loading dock. So it's amazing to see that this has already been in use for quite some time already. And there are some interesting examples where researchers are trying to fuse language models and robots to uh, give them new capabilities, to allow them to be more responsive, to allow them to cooperate better with humans. There are tremendous opportunities there. Terrific, Sam. Yeah, and that's, to me, that's, that's a really the exciting thing is to, and as we keep saying, to have we as humans our experiences, our jobs, our planning for a dinner or a vacation be better enhanced by the use of AI, not completely taken away. I still want to be a part of the planning of my summer vacation, but it'd be great for somebody to spit out a few suggestions without me having to, you know, go to, uh, you know, <laughs> like social media and say, hey, where's the best trip you've taken? And you get 55 answers from friends from all over the world. So this is, that's, there's the, there's the enhancement part that I'm excited about. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, I'm clearly, I mean, for the reason that we're doing this particular series, and everybody else is talking about it. AI is probably the hottest headline of the summer. Um, what's the question that no one is asking? Or what, in other words, what are the questions I should be asking you that I'm not asking you? Hmm. Well, the, the first of those, I think, is the one that I covered already. And that is, you know, how does this really work? And what can understanding how it works tell us about its limitations and current capabilities and where to best uh, employ it. And we've covered a, a bit of that. Uh, another thing that comes to mind that I think people are asking about, but uh, really the, the question cannot be an at cannot be uh, asked uh, too much. And that is what are the risks and harms of uh, this type of technology? Uh, in many ways, the, the risks of, ChatGPT and generative AI stem from a lack of ability on our part to control to control the technology. I talked about how it's just generating the next word, generating the next word, and we've got very little in terms of levers to kind of steer that process as it's generating uh, these words. So uh, if you've used ChatGPT or read about it, you've probably heard this term hallucination. This is the idea that uh, you will ask ChatGPT something and it will confidently give you an answer that is totally wrong. Um, and that's because from its perspective, that set of that sequence of words kind of maximize some uh, or optimize some equation. Uh, and that's all it cares about. It doesn't know anything about right or wrong. Uh, and so um, there are certainly ways that we as an industry are trying to mitigate this, but uh, 
if you understand that it's fundamental to how these models work, you realize that um, you know there's a lot that needs to happen here. And so this has become a big issue for organizations that are trying to uh, deploy this technology, as I mentioned before. Um, the issues include uh, brand and reputation. Um, issues include the possibility of data leakage. There were some big headlines about Samsung's uh, folks at Samsung putting lots of information into ChatGPT and that information being regurgitated uh, by ChatGPT uh, because it was part of that training data. Uh, there are tons of copyright issues that haven't been resolved. If you produce marketing copy based on someone else's marketing copy that happened to be in the training data, um, you know what are the implications and liabilities associated with that? There are just a lot of open issues uh, right now related to uh, the risks of using this technology from a, a business perspective. Not to mention the fact that you know just receiving wrong information and and coming to rely on it. Right, exactly. I mean, certainly that's something that we can all relate to. You, you know, you want to search for something and you you expect that you're going to get the right answer. It's almost like going to Wikipedia. You can't always trust what's there because human beings are writing it. It's not coming from the Encyclopedia Britannica. So I think we're sort of all used to that, maybe a little jaded about what we read because nobody can really 100% trust that it's true. Um, somebody, we're getting and, a bunch of, oh, go ahead, Sam, please. I was just going to say, and, and AI does not mitigate that, right? The All of this training data that we're talking about on the internet, it has its own implicit biases and uh, generative AI not only kind of is based on those biases or incorporates those biases, but it can actually and has been shown uh, by researchers amplify those biases uh, that are found in the, the training data. Uh, an audience question came in about that. Can, is there anybody that can actually weed that out? Can somebody go in and check the code or the programming and say, oh, this is wrong? Does it know when it's going to hallucinate the particular AI? Uh, there are a number of different approaches being taken to uh, to stem hallucinations. Generally, people refer to this as grounding the model uh, so that it's uh, responses are based more on a fact. One of one approach is uh, as opposed to allowing it to kind of freely generate responses based on just its training data. Let's uh, collect some data that we think is relevant, maybe from a traditional search engine, maybe from a, a database of enterprise information. And let's say, hey, this is the information you have to work with. Create a response based on this. Don't get too creative. Uh, and uh, that works, but it's imperfect. The model is still generating text, and it's fundamentally, um, you know, not controllable in the in this element of hallucination. Thanks, Sam. An uh, another question, and maybe we should have probably started here, is what's the difference between generative AI and like AI, like a large language model, like ChatGPT, for example. Yeah, so I think the key contrast there uh, is you know, generative AI versus non-generative AI. Generative AI are AIs that are either generating text. A large language model is an example of a model that can be used to generate text. Um, there are uh, models that can be used to create images. So uh, stable diffusion is an example of a model that, uh, given some text prompting, can be used to create new artistic images. Uh, these are all 
under the umbrella of generative AI. And the contrast there is really to more traditional AI or machine learning approaches that might, for example, go through your pictures and classify which pictures have cats, which pictures have dogs, which pictures have your kids, which pictures have boats. Yeah, my, uh, my phone already does that, and it's, uh, it's kind of crazy. I can just quick search for child, and it brings up pictures of my nieces and my friend's kids, and uh, I'm amazed that it can even point, like, determine what's a child versus an adult, and it's, it's pretty amazing that we're, we're already using it every day, and maybe people don't even realize that we are. It's, it's fascinating. Every time you send a text by voice, you're using AI, which, by the way, according to Forbes, is the most popular way that consumers plan to use it. Uh, 45% of them said they will use it to text and email. 43%, which is something from my colleagues here at UBS to think about, is they want to get answers to financial questions. So something we know about. Um, one more question, Sam, before we wrap, because we actually have a lot of audience questions coming in. So thank you all for doing that. Um, one of the things here says is, what do you expect to maybe be the next great success story um, in the world of AI? What's on the horizon that will really excite us? Uh, you know, you stole my thunder uh, in this regard a little bit earlier in talking about your desire for a tool that can help you plan travel. Uh, that is an example that's a bit of a touchstone for me. Uh, I do a lot of travel as well, and I'm super excited about the prospect that we're getting a lot closer to this world where I can have an intelligent agent in the cloud or on my devices that can learn my preferences, uh, you know, passively just by seeing what I do, what I like, and interact with the outside world on my behalf to accomplish my goals. And again, I often think about this in the context of travel. Um, travel, putting together a chip can be in incredibly complex, right? Uh, there are constraints driven by time and budget. There are strong preferences that I've established over time. Uh, there are lots of searches, lots of systems to interact with. I don't know if you remember the story that broke at the end of last year about Senator Sinema's uh, 37-page memo outlining her travel preferences. Uh, it's that hard, and most of us don't have that 37-page memo or the team <laughs> to read and follow it. Uh, we're stuck with search engines and travel agents that can each handle just a small part of the problem. And a, a personal agent that can take the drudgery out of that uh, would be invaluable to us as individuals as well as to businesses. That's great. That's great, Sam. Um, and by the way, we're asking all of our panelists the question about what excites you most about AI. It sounds like that might be the thing that excites you the most. Is there a, is there a runner up to that to that question for you? Uh, well, you know, one of the things that really drives me through, uh, you know, doing a podcast for seven years and 600 some on episodes is that uh, I'm excited about a lot of this technology and where it can go. And um there are just so many innovative things right now um <clears throat> happening in the in the space and also a lot of really difficult problems to figure out we've got a team of folks in our community that are you know quote unquote dog fooding this technology and uh looking to create a a dialogue based chatbot that will uh take all of the podcast episodes that uh, I create and have created, run those through a, a speech-to-text engine, uh, index those into a, a database, and then use 
what's called retrieval augmented generation. That's this idea of like pulling together uh, relevant results to a query and presenting those to uh, uh, LLM to generate a response to a, a question uh, and do this for you know, to, to help make the podcast a, a more accessible learning tool for uh, for this community. And uh, it's just personal examples like that that uh, I'm super excited about. Yeah, that's like something that excites me as well. We've got uh, videos and podcasts that we do here at the firm, and it would be great to have a tool like that that could really ease the pain of having to manually listen to a 45-minute recording and find those little moments or those snippets of great information that you want to use for a promotional video or to answer a question. So that's great, Sam. Hey, listen, I, we, we're, we're just about out of time. I really want to thank you, Sam, for joining us. This was an incredible way to end our four-part summer series. Thanks for being here, Sam, and uh, good luck on all the travels that you have coming up and all of your podcasts. Good to see you here. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Great. And by the way, you were a great guest. I know you're normally a host, so you're usually <laughs> sitting on this side of the table. So thanks for being a guest. It can be a little daunting to be asked questions instead of asking them. Trust me, I know. But great to see you, Sam. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, same here. Thank you, Sam. And listen, thank you all for joining us. It's been a really, really terrific summer of AI series. We've been so happy to bring it to you. And what an amazing amount of guests we've had over the last few weeks. All of those replays are on the website, which we'll throw up there on the screen. There it is. So uh, thank you again to Sam Charrington. Thank you all for, for being a part of this series over, as I said, the last couple of weeks. And check out those replays of all the events in case you missed any of them, UBS.com slash summer of AI. By the way, there's more great content from our chief investment office here and my team here in UBS Studios, and we are all part of the same team. We've got social media, particularly our Instagram channel at UBS Trending. Tons of great content up there, plus more on the AI story that will be coming your way in the next few months. And don't forget to tune in to the monthly CIO House View live stream. That is the first Thursday of every month at 1 p.m. Eastern time, and it normally happens right here in this studio. Thank you, thank you so much for joining us, everybody. And we hope to bring you more content in the coming weeks and months on all kinds of topics that are important to you and your families. From, Anthony, from New York City, I'm Anthony Pastore. Thank you for joining us. We will see you soon. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.